0: Welcome to Skip the Q, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Alan McAllister, Strategic Head of Marketing and Communications at the Anik Garden. Ian shares with us the magical story behind Lidori, logistics of creating a play structure over 26 meters tall, snot ice cream, free Fridays, and the impact This will all have on the local area and children. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Ian, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for coming to join me. No problem. Let's start with some icebreakers, shall we? Um, Ian and I, we had a little pre-podcast chat a few weeks ago, and we established that we're both from sunny old Essex. This could end up quite messy, really, couldn't it? Because I tend to, whenever I'm speaking to my, my Essex kinfolk, my accent goes very thing <laughs> so this might get this might get messy
1: well the good thing is living up here people don't know my real accent but once they hear that i'm sure that it'll, <laughs> it'll come out they will after this ian
0: <laughs> right okay icebreakers i want to know um topical what's the worst essex nightclub that you've ever been in
1: oh tots tots in south end yes! but it was it was so bad that i used to go every friday <laughs> it was it was bad for the sticky floors and for the the people that were there and for the music they played and everything about it was terrible. But every Friday we'd still go up there. I don't yeah, know why.
0: So bad. It's so good. I can remember driving there from from my part of Essex and going out to Tots. Someone broke my big toe in Tots. Like oh, literally like, stamped on my big toe and broke it.
1: Do you remember um, there was a place called Ritz's, which I think was in Romford. And we went there one night and this was back in the day where people thought if you were wearing trainers, you were going to cause trouble. So you weren't allowed to wear trainers. And a mate of mine, Paul, Paul Mayo, I had two good friends in Essex, Paul Mayo and Ross Girkin. So they were the three of us. But Paul Mayo went up to the club and they wouldn't let me because trainers. So he left the queue and went around the corner, took his shoes off and took his black socks off, put his trainers back on and his black socks over his trainers. And they just let him straight in. Wow. <laughs> yeah, which made Moonwalking brilliant because he had a really good sock. He could moonwalk across the dance floor with that
0: is ridiculous that's ridiculous <laughs> I'm so sorry we just need to go back to your friends' names as well what mayo and gherkin May- are you joking mayo
1: and gherkin no <laughs> so I'm mean, I was always Mac so I was always Ian Mac then there was Mayo and Gherkin so they were the three of us that used to kick around together in Estics.
0: <laughs> it's descended into chaos already oh god <laughs>
1: There you um, go, opening question.
0: So, this is an Essex thing as well, right? Everybody has nicknames, don't they? Oh, yeah. you, you know, the Gavin and Stacey thing where you know, you know, got Smithy and what Chinese Alan and all that. that yeah. is, that's the thing. That's that is so Essex. It's ridiculous. Oh, God. Well, my nickname
1: for ages was um, so I, was, I wasn't I was a good looking chap growing up, and I had uh, a brace, a demi wave, and I had these big reactor light glasses. And I don't know if you've ever seen the National Lampoons European vacation, but the son was <laughs> called Rusty Griswold. <laughs> so, my friend Gary decided that I was just called Rusty. So he still calls me it to this day. So I'm still just Rusty.
0: Oh God, well, this, that's so weird. This my next question was going to be: Have you ever been told you look like someone famous? <laughs> Who was it?
1: Well, yeah, I but that's not a positive thing.
0: No, wasn't expecting Rusty from National Lampoons to come up.
1: I mean, lots of people try and compare themselves to you, know, like some Brad Pitt and George Clooney. Whereas I'm going for 15 year old Rusty Griswold.
0: Humble. I think that that's that's quite humble, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Final one. I feel like the ice is well and truly broken (laughs) It's melted. What is your best scar
1: story? Oh, my best scar story is a very recent one. Last year on New Year's Day, I took the kids for a lovely walk to our local woods with the dog. And me being me, I challenged them both to climb a tree. And it was a tree that was like one of these trees that's too good not to climb. Do you know what I mean? It was really big branches and big trunk. So I've got twins, 14-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. So my daughter was like a whippet and she went up the tree. And then my son, with a bit of encouragement, went up the tree and he got his foot wedged in like the V of the branch, <laughs> about seven and a half, eight foot up. So he couldn't get out. So I climbed up behind him and I held onto a branch either side of him. I said, right, all you've got to do is just wiggle your foot a little bit. So he obviously didn't hear a word. I said, and he yanked his foot out. So we both fell out of the tree. So I grabbed yeah. onto him and he landed on me. And as he landed, I heard my ankle snap. So I'm at the top of the top of the woods but probably a mile into the woods. So the kids that week before had been at Scouts and they learned about what three words. So we had to phone an ambulance and they did the what three words and this, that and the other. So the ambulance had to then, he couldn't drive, so he had to push the stretcher for a mile, pretty much up an incline to get to me. Had to take a breather because it was so far out, <laughs> put me on the stretcher. But then the ambulance had to drop. So it's just me and the kids that live here with the dog. So the ambulance then had to drop the dog and my kids at my house before they took me to hospital. So turned out I'd completely broken my ankle. So I had to oh. go for an operation and I had um, a metal plate, pulse ligament and wiring all around my ankle. So I've got a treat of a scar on my ankle, but they also cut through two nerves. So I also can't feel from the nerve down to my little toe, from my knee down to my little toe at the minute. Oh,
0: no. Oh, God. But, um, I feel like we're going to have to put a warning on this podcast episode if anyone's like slightly <laughs> <a> queasy disposition. <laughs> wow. I was so not lo- expecting that.
1: Yeah, it's a lovely story. Lovely story, isn't it? It's just a... Uh, I think I've learnt my lesson. I went back. I made a blue plaque on Photoshop about Ian fell here, and I went back to the tree afterwards and pinned it on the tree. It's <laughs> <laughs> a special moment. <laughs> yeah, so um, that, that tree will always be in my memory. But well done, your children
0: on learning on learning um, the skills to get you out of a very. Tricky situation.
1: Yeah, it was great. And they loved it because they got riding ride in an ambulance. So their Snapchat stories were filled up that day with pictures of them and the dog in an ambulance <laughs> on a muddy New Year's Day.
0: Great story. Thank you for sharing. It's all right. I-, I feel like we've started the podcast on high. Uh, well, we can't afternoon. really go
1: any lower than this, can we? Not really, no.
0: Right. Um, your unpopular opinion, Ian. I dread to think what this might be.
1: <laughs> so I had a few and I was trying to think which one would upset the least people. So this one's cake, and I hate cake, and I've always hated cake, really dislike cake. And I, I think people say to me, "What is it you don't like about cake?" And I think I've narrowed it down to the taste, the texture, the smell, and the look, because I just everything about a cake I don't like. So when it comes to birthdays, the kids obviously get me a birthday cake because they can eat it themselves. But I just don't like cake. I've got a bit of a funny, not so much now, but I had a funny food thing. So I, <laughs> I, I'm sorry in advance. I've been eating yellow food for about six months. <laughs> And it was anything, anything yellow, even to the point where if I got a packet of M&Ms, I wouldn't eat the yellow ones.
0: Can I just ask at what what age were you? Was this I do not <laughs> tell
1: me <you>, thirty. It's <laughs> probably worse than that, it's about thirty-five. Like my late thirties. Genuinely. Genuinely. Developed an aversion to yellow food. So my friend Stephen, who's uh head of HR at work, he went through a phase of thinking to try and re-educate me. So every Friday he'd go for at Stephen's adventures in food. And it was all the food that I probably should have eaten by the time I was like 40-odd and hadn't. So things like sushi or um, porridge. <laughs> so every Friday, it'd bring in something and it'd be a chart, like a reward chart. And he would put a little sticker on if I liked it or didn't like it. <laughs> just, just because people don't know. I'm a 47-year-old man with two children.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And um, have you eaten a banana since? That's, that's
1: what I need to know. Yeah, well, since I started re-eating yellow food. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm all over it. I like a banana, I like a bit of pineapple. Cheese is great. <laughs> we would just have the argument because people would say to me, and this was my bugbear, and I'd get really irritated with this. People would say, what about chips? and um, Chips aren't yellow. They're like a beige. So chips were allowed.
0: Oh, but, uh, OK. So, yeah. Beige, so, and, like, and pasta as well. They're all in the beige category rather than the yellow. OK. Yeah.
1: <laughs> good, good <I'm> like, <laughs> yellow. So can you imagine presenting me with a yellow cake? Yellow cake, that'd be my idea of hell.
0: That's your worst nightmare, isn't it? Um, what about Jaffa cakes? How do you sit about that? Is that a cake or a biscuit?
1: I can tolerate a Jaffa cake, but I wouldn't choose one. I, my food of choice would always be a chocolate hobnob. It's no question. Definitely great a biscuit. biscuit. Yeah. Great biscuit. In good the fridge. Crunch, good for the dunk. You're always in the fridge, yeah. yeah. Chocolate, what do you think about this?
0: Chocolate. Does it live
1: in your cupboard or in your fridge?
0: Fridge. I, I like a crunch. I like it to go crunch and then I like that it then melts in your mouth do you know it's like two different sensations in one Um, people will argue about this this is not an unpopular opinion by the way but people will not be happy about this at all
1: no but I mean the people that aren't happy with it are wrong
0: they are (laughs) agreed (laughs) oh my goodness what a start to this podcast okay how did an Essex boy end up in Northumberland tell me a little bit about your background because you're not from attractions background at all are you you come from a completely different sector
1: yeah, when I, when I got married, which since divorce, but when I got married, my best man suggested it was witness protection. That's what kind of brought me 350 miles north. But the fact was I was working. So I'm, I'm from Essex, as we've previously mentioned. And I then went to university in Surrey. I went to Kingston um, and I was working just locally, really, just in pubs and clubs. Um, and I went downstairs to my flat and there was a re-employment. So I thought it's time to get a proper job. And it was literally under my flat. And I ended up working there, mainly because it was under my flat and it took about 10 seconds to commute to it. So I spent a bit of time in recruitment. And at the time, I was living with two flat, flatmates, weirdly both called Marcus. So Marcus 1 and Marcus 2. Um, both worked in TV. One worked, I think, Channel 5 and one was a BBC or ITV. And they kept telling me how good their, their jobs were and how great their life was. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm you gonna know, can't beat them. have got to join them. So I tried, did actually beat them. So I wrote to MTV with a really cocky letter <laughs> saying how much it would be their big mistake if they didn't recruit me and this and the other. So I went in for my interview, and the guy said, um, he said I've got you in because you're either really, really good or really, really cocky, and I don't know which one it is. So eventually <laughs> they gave me a job. So I worked at, in media in London. Nice. And I think I was there for two years, and I just got sick of the rat race. Um, and it was just the commute to London. It was an hour each way, and I, I, was, I was fed up of it, and I was fed up of the people, and I was fed up of the busyness. Um, and I met my then wife, who is from up here, but she had a flat in Edinburgh. I just thought, you know what, I've got no real commitments down here. I don't have any kids or pets or any of that sort of stuff. So I just checked it all in and we moved to Edinburgh. And I kind of flitted around in uh, recruitment and odds and ends. Moved to the north and set up a property company. So we were renting properties to students. Then I went to work for a marketing company. And then I ended up working where I do now at the Annette Garden, part-time doing marketing. And then just kind of worked my up from there. I can't remember what the question was. Was it your background?
0: Yeah, you answered it well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, 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 well done.
1: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and so that's yeah, what... so I definitely didn't come from tourism, but I kind of came from marketing kind of sales. And I think I've always been one of these people that might be clear by now that could just talk.
0: That's coming across. Definitely, definitely getting that on this on this episode, Ian. But I like that. You sound like someone who makes their own opportunities in life, which I, I like. You know, you just go out and get what get what you get what you want and what's going to fit for you. Tell us a little bit about Annette Garden, because it's quite we're gonna talk a little bit about something. We're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about something attached to Annette Garden, but Annette Garden's itself is quite spectacular. I think it dates back, is it nineteen ninety-six it dates back to is that when it was
1: what well, originally about eighteen ninety, we can date it back to. So it was the original um garden kitchen or kitchen garden for the Annick Castle. So it was throughout the two world wars, it was what fed all the local farmers and the local community and this, that and the other. So come sort of the nineties is when the Duchess of Northumberland, who lives in the castle, was married to the Duke. That's when she took it on as a bit of a project. Um and she got in some designers uh from i think belgium called verts design so it's a verts design garden uh, and she took it over as a garden she always wanted it to be she always said it was going to be a stage for people to do whatever they want in so we can put on events we've had random things like we've had mixed martial arts in the garden and then we've had pepper peak characters coming in so it's a real variety of things that we do in the garden but um yeah so it's been open for 20 odd years now we're a charity nice. so we're just about celebrating the 20th year of becoming a charity so, yeah, the, the Annick Garden itself is a garden, as you'd expect. It's got world's largest Taihaku cherry orchard outside of Japan. got a poison garden. It's got the world's largest treehouse, which is a restaurant. Uh, it's got all these kind of unusual things that you wouldn't necessarily put in, like, a an RHS garden or a Kew Garden-type place. And it's just – it's a great big open space that we market, people come, and we do weird events in.
0: <laughs> so it's quite special in its own right, isn't it? But then um... – about 12 years ago, Jane Percy, the Duchess of Northumberland, she had another idea, didn't she? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Do you all get a little bit worried when she says, I've got this idea? Because this one's been a pretty mental one, hasn't it? Spectacularly it has. mental one.
1: Yeah. It's kind of that first glimmer of, oh God, what's it going to be now? <laughs> With the backup of the thing is that when she has an idea, she sees it through. So, and, and I say this, I know a lot of people chuck this phrase around loosely, and I, I don't mean it at all. She's a visionary. Because she does, she has these completely off the wall ideas, but then got the determination and the team behind her to actually see them through. Yeah. So the new project being being the biggie, which has been years in the making and years in the planning. And I'm sure you want, do you want to introduce it or do you want me to say what it well, is? Well,
0: uh, what you do it, the world's biggest children's play park.
1: Yeah. So it's called Lilla Dory, which every single thing in it is from her head. And she's got this really creative outlook on life. And she's then causing the right people to kind of bring them to life. So she imagined this place where kids could just be away from technology, where they could play and actually play like we used to when we were little. And we'd go out making dens and kind of making up our own stories. And it's called Lilidori. So the the, the concept of the place is that it's a Lilidori village. And there's nine clans that live in this village. And all of the clans worship Christmas. So you've got good clans and you've got bad clans. and it's weird talking about this in a normal way now. And I've seen construction staff talk about this and it, it feels weird to be saying things like the elves and the fairies and the pixies, but it got to the point when we were building where you'd see like the, the big construction workers and the joiners are, like fagging their mouth, talking about pixies houses and fairies <laughs> and elves. But it's the, the concept is that some of the clans are really good, like the fairies and the pixies. And then some are a bit more troublesome, like the goblins and the hobgoblins and the trolls. But at Christmas time, they all come together to worship Christmas. So. Whilst it's Christmas-themed, it's not Christmas all year, um, apart from the gift shop, which is fully Christmas every time of day. You can buy a bauble tomorrow if you want. But we've also got the world's largest play structure. Um, so the, the play structure was built by a company called Monstrum, who are based in Denmark. And it's it, it's one of these things it has got to be seen to be believed, which makes marketing it quite tricky because you can't really feel it until you're stood underneath it. Um, but local landmark, the Angel of the North, is always a good point of reference. So our play structure is six metres taller than the Angel of the North. Wow. And there's a slide from the top. So it's a 26 metre high structure. And there's a slide that comes from 20 metres up. But to get to this slide, you go around this really convoluted system of walkways and corridors and you're climbing up uncomfortable spaces and squeezing through things and climbing up nets. And that's that's just part of it. The rest of it is all these clan houses. So it's a really, really fascinating place.
0: It's amazing, isn't it, that all of this came out of her head and just. So I watched. Um, ITV did a, a publication on your launch, um, which was it was only a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? They that it, that it mm-hmm. opened. The presenter of the snippet, he went up the slide and came down it, and and he was talking it through, and he was saying twenty six meters, and I was like, oh yeah, that's that's quite that's quite high, isn't it? But. But you can't really grasp when someone says that to me. I couldn't really kind of grasp what the height of twenty six meters actually looked like. So when you said that comparison that you've just given about the Angel of the North, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's really big. Like, that's really, it's really big.
1: But there's no point. It's all enclosed, so that like, you've got open netting and this and that. But there's nowhere that kids can actually fall off, if you like so I think kids it tests their bravery yeah I mean it's handy for us from an insurance point of view <laughs> yeah. in health and safety certainly <laughs> but kids like to test themselves so you'll see them start the session and they'll just be on the little swings at the bottom or on the little spinny mushrooms and then by the end of the session you see them at the top running around like there's no one's business just testing bravery I think that's the big thing
0: yeah yeah and I love the idea that it's it's just it opens your imagination. You know, you can be any part of that story. You know, you've got that underlying story of the clans and the, and that they worship Christmas, but then you make your own, you make your own part of that story to go with it. And who like based on where you interact and and where you go and where you climb or what houses you go into and all of those kind of things. It is it is pure magic, isn't it?
1: It is, and it's uh, we've got a team of people that work. They're called secret keepers, so that they're magnificent um, in their outfits and costumes, but they're really extravagantly dressed with feathers in their hats and all sorts and their job's almost to facilitate the play so it was almost a marketer's dream when I started off because we couldn't we couldn't really talk about what it was because people didn't understand until it was built couldn't see it so I came up with a concept which is the most lazy marketing you'll ever think of and the, the whole tagline which is carried through is what's your story so really what we're doing is we're encouraging people to make their own narrative and to make their own story which, I mean, it saves me the job for a start. But also we don't want to dictate that, well, that clan looks like this because you can't see the clans. You can see the houses and you can imagine how they are, but you can't actually see anything. So when you get there, it's all brought together by this immersive sound. We've got, it's like a million quid's worth of sound system for each clan house. has got its own immersive sound system that kind of gives you implications or ideas as to what that clan might be up to or what's happening inside the house. So you can look into their house window and you can see how it's all set up. So it kind of starts to build this picture. And then the secret keepers are there to encourage that with the kids. And oh, what do you think they look like? And oh, did you hear that sort of noise? And it, it gives this underlying narrative for every kid that comes is obviously going to leave with a different picture of what a particular clan or a particular circumstance is like.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So they never you, you you don't have the characters, you don't they never see what, you know, the goblins look like for instance. They have to make all of that up in their own in their own minds.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got this sort of narrative in the background that we've got an idea of what the Duchess has imagined the clans to look like or the clans to do or the clans to kind of be like, but we never tell the kids this. It's, it's all about provoking provoking thought and provoking story. There was books that I used to read when I was a kid and they were choose-your-own-adventure books and it was kind of you, you make-your-own-adventure. Yeah. So every, even if one one kid came to Lillardory five times, they might have a completely different experience each time just because of their imagination and the sort of stuff that the secret keepers have, have fed them, if you like.
0: Oh, I love that. Right. While we're talking about secret keepers, um, you've got a head of play, haven't you, Nathan? This is, I, I don't know any other organisations or attractions that have got a head of play. How did that kind of come about?
1: So to give me his full name, it's Nathan Bonk. So, Nathan excellent, Bonk excellent is um He's come over from America specifically to organise the play and the Secret keepers and this, that. So that's his kind of creation, if you like, in conjunction with the Duchess. So he was meeting with the Duchess virtually daily to make sure he was on the right lines and she was happy with what he was doing. But to kind of put an extra element of weirdness into the story, which, in case we haven't had enough weirdness in the podcast already, in the garden, going back two or three years, um, I'm friends with a guy called Stuart, who's the reigning Mr. Gay World. And he's only reigning because they disbanded the competition after he finished it. So he kept the title. So he, he's, he's kept that. So he got in touch to say that he wanted uh, somewhere to host Mr Gay England, which is like a, a it's a pride initiative. And it's, it's not just a catwalk, it's education and it's exams. And then the winner of it ends up representing the sort of the gay community to go to parliament and lobby parliament and kind okay. of speak in schools and this and the other. So I said, well, the best place, really, if you think of the most sort of unusual place that you could think of in a really rural town, where there aren't many people of any persu- persuasion would be anic, So we put it in the middle of the garden. So the cat walks right down the middle of the garden. And we've rebranded that into Day, which we're doing again this year, Gay Day. So what we do is we have Gay Day and it's everything. We've got market traders, LBTQ+, friendly market traders, and face painters, and we do trails and all sorts of things. So anyway, last year we had Mr Gay Europe and Nathan's friends with Stuart. So Nathan came over to help with the competition Mr. Norway had COVID, so couldn't turn up. So there were one person short. So Nathan ended up weirdly representing America in the Mister Gay Europe competition. Wow! <laughs> so as as if you get to know Nathan, as you'd understand, he's always got an outfit or two just stashed away just in case. <laughs> so he came out with like the short camouflage shorts and the face paint and waving the USA flag. Anyway, after Gay Day, he went home and he'd fallen in love with Anik, and it was just it wasn't New York. He lived like a six minute walk to Central Park. So it's totally different. But he fell in love with the place and he sent me an email with a bit of a video explaining why he loves Anik and if there's any opportunities that came up and this, that and the other. And the only thing that popped into my head as soon as I saw his video was the head of play. And I just knew that he would be the person for this role. And but,
0: but was it a role that you were you were looking for? You were looking or, or did you create it?
1: Before him. The role we'd discussed, we'd, we'd, we'd always discussed that we needed someone. It was going to be, it's almost like a head of operations for Lilla Dory, but that sounds okay. far too boring. So yeah. we always knew there was going to be a role for somebody. I don't think we quite realised to the extent of how influential this role would be in creating the entire story and the entire visit. So Nathan with his ideas, he's opened theme parks before. He's been in stunt performances in various theme parks. He opened like the Harry Potter experience in Orlando. So he's done all this stuff already. But I remember he, he Zoomed called me one morning. He said, oh, you're never going to believe it. I've got an interview with the Duchess at lunchtime. How oh, brilliant. So I gave him a few bit of background and you know, what we were working towards. About two hours later, he, he Zoomed me back. He said, oh, you're never going to believe it. I've got the job. they sought me out of house. I'm flying over next week and I've got tea at the castle with the Duchess. <laughs> it's like every American film you've seen where they try to represent England in a completely fictional way. He was living it. <laughs> What a life. Wow. And that was it. And he's been here since and he loves it. He's absolutely settled. He's incredible. He's got this team of amazing people who do things like juggling with Diablos and teaching kids that go on balance boards and hula hoops, where their job is to interact with everybody that comes in. And just create the atmosphere
0: and that's what makes the place so special isn't it that it's it's that interaction from the people and the encouragement of the ideas that the children have to explore them that 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 makes it a, a magical place
1: it is it's incredible to sit as a construction site and now to see six seven hundred kids running around each session screaming and laughing and coming out with ruddy faces and wet trousers it's just it's everything we wanted it to be come to life all of a sudden.
0: It sounds magic, and I mean, I've seen those faces. I've seen the kids' faces on the on the um, on the ITV clip, which we'll we'll put in the show notes. Actually, so you can have a look at it if you haven't had a chance to go up there yet. Um, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about because you've, you've said a few times now. I mean, Annick is is it's relatively rural, a small community. There's not a huge amount going on there, other than this spectacular, you know, Annick Garden and Lilla Dory that's just launched. You've got you offer free Fridays. And I saw uh, the Duchess talk about this. It's for local children, uh, school children, to come for free on a Friday so they can experience what's happening there. What impact do you think that Lily Dory is going to have on the local community and the children there?
1: I think so, so two elements to that, really. The, the creation of the attraction itself, we've always estimated roughly or looking quite accurately based on recent figures, that it's going to bring an extra 200,000 people a year into the area. And that's going to benefit, obviously, it's going to benefit us, it's going to benefit the Annick Garden Trust, it's going to benefit the Annick Castle, which is another attraction up the road, all the local restaurants, pubs, hotels, everyone's going to benefit because what we're hoping to do is turn Annick into a multi-day destination. So people won't just come for one of the things and go back to Newcastle or back to Edinburgh or do it as a day trip. So we're hoping that it will really kind of drive the local economy. So in terms of local economic benefit, I think that that's kind of nailed really. that's The figures are already quite obvious. In terms of the free Fridays, then you don't have to go that far out of Annick, particularly if you went to South Northumberland. And there's quite a lot of people that are in all sorts of various situations. There's schools in different areas. There's kids that just would not be able to afford to come otherwise. Because, I mean, it's comparable to other attractions, but it's still not a cheap day out. It's not mm-hmm. a free quid to go to the local soft play. So there's a lot of kids that we, the Duchess particularly just didn't think it was fair, wouldn't be able to experience it, hence free Fridays. So the idea of Free Friday is that every school child in Northumberland, and then eventually when we've kind of been running for a bit, we'll widen it to Tyne and to Newcastle. But at the minute, every child in Northumberland should be able to experience Dory without having to pay. So we've opened up this application process where local schools can apply to come to one of the sessions, and that's for any Friday throughout the year. So already the mini-uptake's been phenomenal. And there's schools that you see that you think, you know, what? I know exactly what area that school's in and without making too many judgments you know that they just would not be able to afford to come so we're giving them the opportunity to come so that's part one of free fridays which is well underway at the minute and i think we're almost booked up for the rest of the next 12 months with fridays that's
0: amazing
1: but the next part is that the duchess is now to now do other initiatives to try and put money into a ring fenced account so then eventually when that account builds up we'll also be able to start to subsidize travel so if you've got a school that's an hour's journey away hopefully this pot of money they can apply to it to pay for their hiring of a school coach or a minibus or whatever it's going to be to actually bring the kids up so it's an entirely free day um, and there's different things like she's doing private tours we're doing packages where you can have a nice meal at the treehouse and then come into Lillarderry afterwards so like I say that's all going to be ring fence specifically for transport from free Fridays.
0: That's incredible what an opportunity and like you say for the the, the kids that just you know would not have that opportunity to be able to go and ex- experience it. It's just such a wonderful thing to be able to do.
1: It is. It's incredible. And I think a lot of the feedback we saw before we opened, because again, as I say, it's, it was quite hard to explain the concept of it and what you actually got for your, for your 15 quid entry fee. So a lot of people say, oh, you've outpriced us and we can't afford it and this, that and the other. And that's why it was really good to then say, look, if you want to bring your kids, just tell your kids to speak to their teacher and get the teacher to speak to us. And we can facilitate them for free. So it's it's making a difference already. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's then it's about selling what that fifteen pounds gets you. You know the benefits of that fifteen pounds. Yes, it, it's a relatively higher price point, but you know you, you you start to break it down about the experience that they get there and 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 the magic that can actually happen that they just they can't get anywhere else. And then it starts to become slightly more appealing purchase I guess there's a longevity to the day as well you can stay there for quite a long time right you've got that yeah. that dwell time as well so when you work it out cost per hour it mm-hmm. actually seems quite quite reasonable
1: and I think having two kids myself I think what am I going to compare this to so you can't compare it to going to the local council run park because it's it's nowhere near the same it's not just a climbing frame and then I think well what else would I do for the kids for that time period on a Saturday if we're bored probably go to the cinema so the cinema is going to be fifteen twenty quid, what to get in, and then you've got the sweets and the There you've got two hours of sitting in silence, watching a film, and then you come out, go home, and that's done. So to compare it to that, to Little Dory, you've got a three hour session where you can come in, whole family can interact, and it's running free and it's fresh air. And it, I mean, it's Northumberland; it's always fresh air. <laughs> and by fresh, I mean probably freezing most of the time. But it's it's you've got this. It's a completely different experience. And I think where people were just looking at it as it's a climbing frame, and, well, I could just go up the park. So it's it's trying to explain to people that it is different and, like, yeah, it, it doesn't work out a really cheap day for if you've got two parents and three kids, for example. But what we have done, we've introduced, and we're going to look at this after some holidays, we introduced the Founder Lilladorian membership. And my idea with this is always, it's got to be the child focused. So it's the child that has the membership. So little Johnny could have a membership for him and an adult or him and two adults. And that means they could bring in mum and dad, or they could bring in nanny granddad, or they could bring in whoever they want. But it's always for me been the child that dictates this whole thing. So we always say that well-behaved adults can come in with a responsible child. So we've kind of flipped <laughs> the narrative a little bit there. And in terms of the membership itself, I used to read the Beano when I was a kid. And the only thing I ever wanted growing up was a Dennis the Menace fan club membership. And with that, you got a wallet, a membership card and a badge. And so for me, Lilladorian membership, you get a wallet, a card and a badge. So all these founder Lilladorians walk around proudly displaying their badge because there was a limited number of to be the very first people to be these yeah. members. But it's empowering the kids. It's The adults are allowed to come if the kid says they can come. I, I almost want like to wake up on a Saturday morning and the child go, right, mum, you've been good. You can come with me. Dad, you got to wash the car and do the dishes. <laughs>
0: i love that i love that giving them the choices they take and to take granny as well yeah that's a it's a really good point about the memberships isn't it because it is it is generally tied to the adult and the children that they have but i love that you've empowered the kids to make that choice yeah yeah so you've got to be the kid the parents have to be good or weak exactly that's one
1: little
0: story points yeah yeah (laughs) well we're going back to your food eating and your little sticker chart aren't we that's all you need (laughs) little sticker chart uh yeah there you go sell that in the shop for uh, for the adults to buy their sticker their sticker reward chart whether they get to come back on it on the
1: next visit um that's a great idea talking of the shop actually just briefly because you segue, mentioned
0: let's it. let's yeah oh. let's, 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 let's i'm on this i'm on fire today Ian, segue into the shop
1: <laughs> so my good friend matthew henderson who anyone who listens to the podcast will have heard him before great. he has been incredible he's been absolutely amazing it was him that put you and i in touch in the first it place was. We bought him in to get the shop shop ready, and to say it's shop ready is the biggest understatement of the century because it's. I've never seen anything like it. The, the people that work in retail, the our retail manager Tracy, I'm a, this, to coin a phrase, and to, to not sound corny, it's like all the Christmases have come up once because she's always wanted this shop that she's proud of, that she's selling things that she believes in. It's all been sourced specifically for her, and Matt has done just what a job. It's incredible.
0: He is such a great guy, Matt. He uh, so Matthew came on our podcast. It was only a few episodes away actually ago, actually. And um Matt used to work at Beamish and now he's out on his own. He's a consultant now and he helps lots of attractions work out, you know, their special offering, you know, the uniqueness when it comes to products. And I have seen a photograph of the shop and oh my <laughs> god,
1: it's it's
0: um it looks like an attraction in itself. It It looks like something you'd pay to go visit in itself, like a a Santa's Grotto or something. It's just incredible.
1: It's phenomenal. And he was also fundamental in helping us with all the food and stuff that we're doing across site, but mainly in there. I mean, you know about the ice creams.
0: I know about the ice cream. Tell us.
1: So there's there's three flavours. I mean, you've got a vanilla, but then you've got the the other obvious choices. You've got Troll Snot ice cream and you've got Fairy Dust ice cream. So Mm. Fairy Dust is like a raspberry ripple with popping candy. And Trollsnut is pure bright green, but it's sour apple, which sounds vile, but it's actually really nice. But he's—I mean, I've got pictures of him with a hairnet at the ice cream facility, which I keep telling him should be his next Tinder profile. He's (laughs) got really—he's got so involved in it. He's he's, just—he's been instrumental in the whole thing. I don't—I don't think we'd be anywhere near where we are now without Matthew. Oh
0: wow, well that is a massive compliment to Matthew in itself, isn't it? No, he's—he's a great guy, and I think. It's something that sometimes gets a bit overlooked when it comes to, to shop. And you you often go to, to places and you just you see the same things, you know, exit through the gift shop. You see the same things and you're it, it genuinely just feels like and I can only say this from the photos, but it just feels like you're stepping into such a magical world as an extension of the magical world that you've just come out of.
1: It really is. It's surreal because on press day, we had a launch day a couple of weeks ago. It was so, so hot. It was a beautiful day. I Clearly, had my sunglasses on all day, caught a nice tan. It was like, so Apart from the work stuff, it was a really nice day. But then you, you do, you exit into the shop and it's like you've already fast-forwarded six months and you're in the middle of Christmas. There's Christmas trees and candy canes and baubles and not to mention the ridiculous amount of like old-fashioned sweet jars with troll's fingers and different fudges. And it's, it is surreal because then you've, you've had this 20-minute Christmas experience in the shop and then you're back into 24 degree heat again. It's, it's bizarre.
0: So you opened on, was it the 25th of May? Was that your opening opening day?
1: Yeah, so a couple of days before half term. So we had, we were supposed to have a lot more testing than we had. But because of construction issues, we ended up with two testing days. We were supposed to have at least a month or two months testing. Oh, but we had to literally do it all in two days. So we opened, uh, we had a VIP day and then we opened for the public on the Thursday. And we've been so we would we, never have predicted this. The Thursday, Friday and then the full half term, every single slot was sold out to the point where after a couple of days, we made a judgment call to up capacity and then we upped it again. And it's just it's been full, absolutely full.
0: And have you kept that capacity as well? or, just, or... Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, yeah, no, because we I think we didn't we didn't want the risk of opening saying, right, we're going to get 800 kids in per session. And then all of a sudden there's 800 people trying to go down a slide. So we didn't want to ruin the visitor's experience with mm-hmm. um, queues and with too many people and crowds and this and the other. So we opened with 300 capacity, which was, I mean, once 300 people are on the play structure, you kind not see it. It's like you can't hear them, you can't see them. They've just vanished like ants. So we upped it to five. and We're looking at upping it again to, I think, 750. We're going to maybe try and push it up to for some holidays.
0: Gosh, that's incredible. So it's safe to say that it's been a successful launch
1: then. Do you know what? I, we, we couldn't have asked for more. We've had the weather. <laughs> we've had the publicity we've had everything has been going so well it's been a really positive experience it was touch and go for a bit where we we're all sort of walking around a few days before launch oh, shit there's a there's a bump there there's a thing yeah and the construction team i've never seen anyone react like it like the lighting team would pretty much work until four o'clock in the morning so they'd work all day but then they'd want to test their lights so they'd have to wait till it got dark wow. but then they'd work all night till four o'clock the next morning go home for a few hours, Kip, and then come back again. And it's we've got a big thank you party tonight at Lillardory to thank all of the staff, volunteers and construction Uh. team for everything they've done. There's like a few hundred people coming tonight. Um, And it's just, it's been overwhelming how everybody's got involved, even contractors that might be there for a week doing something. It's been almost like a pride project for them.
0: Oh, it's amazing. Well, that but that shines through in what you've created, right? Everybody that's touched it has taken some kind of ownership of it. What a lovely thing to do, to throw the party as well, to say thank you. Um, yeah, It's June now. The story behind Illidori obviously involves Christmas. I'm really intrigued as to what you might have planned for Christmas. Are you allowed to talk about any of that yet, or is it embargoed?
1: I can talk about it a little bit, because okay. um, I've seen it. So we had a, a sneak peek. So, for the last two years, we've been being followed around by MGM, who have been filming a documentary for Channel Four. So, Channel Four documentary goes out, I think, August. So, there's a six-part Saturday night documentary going out, all about the Duchess. Well was called the Duchess, but it's all about her leading up to this project. So, their last filming day was VIP press day. Wow! So about three days before that, we had a preview one night at ten o'clock. We were to go onto site to get a preview of Christmas. and I don't even think I can come up with the words, and I'm quite good with words. I can't even put together a sentence that explains quite how magical it is. It's just <laughs> the lights, the sounds, the atmosphere. And this was a summer's night at 10 o'clock. So I can't even think what it will be like when it is actually Christmas. And we've got, so we've got three Santa's grottos. There's a, there's a, to talk you kind of back a little bit, you've probably seen the picture of the big Lillardory entrance gate. Yeah. So that that gate doesn't open until Christmas. So until Christ- so when you get to the gate, you've got sounds, you've got a, a troll talking to a pixie and who wants pixie wants to let us in and the troll won't let her. So you stand there and you can hear this immersive sound and they won't open the gate. So what you have to do is kind of find a way around and go through a hidden tunnel. At Christmas, those gates will open and it's like all of a sudden, Christmas is there. So you'll you come in and every Christmas tree is going to be lit. And bear in mind, we've got 1,400 Christmas trees. Oh, every God. Christmas trees you've got fairy lights in, there's just the atmosphere was just phenomenal. It sounds like a cop out, but it's got to be seen to be believed.
0: Wow! Well, I look forward to that because that sounds right up my street.
1: Well, you know you're welcome. If you thank come along, you. You're more than welcome. I'll even treat you to some troll snot ice cream.
0: <laughs> how can I? How could I possibly say no to that?
1: <laughs> it's that Essex um, charm, isn't it?
0: <laughs> just wins me over every time. Ian, thank you for coming on. So we always ask our guests to recommend a book um, at the end of a podcast. What have you got for us today?
1: So this sounds ridiculous when I say this because it's a work of fiction and I'm not going to say that it changed my life, but it really changed my outlook on a lot of things. And it was post-COVID I read it and someone had recommended it, so I went and bought a copy. And it's got to the point now where I've probably funded about 90% of the book sales because I keep buying copies and saying to someone, oh, you'll love this, and have given them a copy. Um, and it's uh, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Oh, great and book. Have if you, if you, if you read it?
0: Yeah, great book.
1: For me, I think... I am where I am now and my career path, my life path, everything was based on decisions. And sometimes it's easy to sit and think, oh, that's a bad decision. If I hadn't made that decision, I'd be much happier now. And the Midnight Library, for anyone who hasn't read it, is all about going back and retrospectively looking at your decisions that you've made in life. And you get a glimpse of where that decision took you. And I think for me what it did was instead of me constantly going back, not that I'm depressed or anything, but you kind of sit and dwell sometimes instead of thinking, well, so for example, I nearly joined the RAF when I was 17 and they, I wanted to be military police, but because I've got terrible eyesight, they said, well, we can't give you a gun because you probably shoot the wrong person. So they offered me um, dentistry. And so looking at the time I was typical Essex toys were out the pram. "Ah, I'm not doing if I don't want to do it. So I went to uni and did all that stuff. But I often think back and I think, oh, do you know what? If I'd have gone in the RAF then and they'd have paid to train me as a dentist and I'd done the service, I could have come out and sat my in dental practice and this, that, and the other. And I often think, would I be happier had I've done that and done that as a career path and been a, a professional, if you like, because still, I still don't consider myself a professional. <laughs> but then this book almost made me reframe that a little bit and think, you know what? I might not have done that I might have hated it or I might something else would have changed and I wouldn't have had my beautiful children on a stupid dog or wouldn't have any of that sort of stuff now if I'd taken that career path so in a nutshell for me the the Midnight Library is a really good read it's quite an easy read I found because I was really invested in it but it 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 made me reframe a little bit
0: yeah it's a great book I've read it a couple of times now and and similar to you it's made me look back at not so much choices, but but events that have, that have happened to us. Um, me and my partner, we've had a load of uh, people, this is quite public knowledge, we've had a load of trouble having children and we lost quite a few along the way and uh, multiple rounds of IVF and all of that malarkey. And I think that that, that book made me reflect on some of those things that had happened um, because you start to question am i a bad person here or like uh, you know why are these things happening to us you know we're we're good people what's what's wrong but but some of those things that have happened regardless you know despite them being really difficult and quite awful mm-hmm. they've led you to other things that are magic and you know they've given you gifts of something something really tragic happened has been able to give us the gift of being able to talk about it openly which has then gone on and helped other people be able to talk about it or share how they are or just given someone found them someone that they can talk to you know and I think you have to just kind of look back at those things and it, it, I don't know it's a, long, yeah. a long-winded way of saying it. I completely agree with you and it's a really good book if you're feeling a bit reflective about about your life it's definitely one to go and, and have a read of so yeah good I share.
1: I think it made me kind of start to think about the ways of have handled things and how I sort of shape things moving forward so that my best friend died when we were at college and my nephew died when he was eight and all these things in your life at the time are the worst thing that could ever possibly happen and you could either go one way or the other and it it almost explained or kind of put into context a little bit i think that these things happen not necessarily for a reason but the way that you cope with it and deal with it and move on after it that's almost like the learning that you take from it so but this is a different podcast altogether this is like a grief cast so we'll we'll do another
0: one this has ended completely a uh, completely opposite spectrum than it started Ian. um anyway listeners if you want to win a copy of that book i'd highly recommend you go and do this so go over to this podcast announcement and retweet it with the words i want ian's book and you will be uh, put into the drawer to win a copy of the midnight uh midnight garden midnight, garden. midnight library midnight library midnight <laughs> Gardener is a whole different whole different book kids book midnight library <laughs> um ian thanks for coming on today it's been brilliant to chat to you I, you've had me in tears of laughter um <laughs> uh, and i've loved every minute of it um we will put all of the information about lily dory and annette gardens into the show notes so you can have a little look for yourself but those tickets for christmas are going to sell out quickly
1: people. so <laughs>
0: get yourself on the mailing list that's all i'm going to say
1: no, thank you, Kelly. It's been so nice to talk to you. Talk to and living this far north. It's nice to establish my roots with an ethics person again.
0: Well, always welcome. Six-month check-in, right?
1: <laughs> Thanks, Kelly.
0: Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.